Hello everyone and welcome to episode 39 of season 1 Reading with Grace, where we will start reading The Unwanted's Island of Legends. But first, a quick recap of the third book on The Unwanted series, The Unwanted's Island of Fire, which we finished last episode. So book three started with practically nothing since Mr. Today was gone, so was Artemis, and so was everyone's hope. But after Alex received some much needed help by his new friends Sky and Crow, he managed to bring back the magical world. Lonnie and Sam Heed were being held captive on an island called Warbler, where there's no sound and no speaking. After Artemis returned, Alex made plans to save Lon and Sam Heed again, with the help of Sky and Crow, who are originally from there. He put together a crew and started to save them, but the ship had other plans and instead took them to a new island called Pirate Island. Pirate Island has an entire society living beneath it, including Sky and Crow's mother, and can sink and reappear in the water whenever it wants. Not much happened in Quill this book except Aaron is now High Priest, and Gondolieri is getting stronger with her magic. Alex and his crew eventually made it to Warbler and successfully saved Samhead and Lonnie, although they had to fill in their mind on all the bad news. Alex was badly injured from the expedition to Warbler, but recovered just fine in time. Alex admitted his romantical feelings for Skye after he stopped her from trying to save her mother on her own. He then promised he would help her save her to the best of his ability soon. At the end of book three, everything seemed back to normal until an explosion happened in the sky, Aaron came to Artemis to inquire about it, and not soon after, warbler ships began to arise on the horizon. Artemis was under attack. That's the end of book three, the Unwanted's Island of Fire summary. I hope you all enjoy book four. The Unwanted's Island of Legends by Lisa McMahon, book four in the Unwanted series. One, Other Nasty Places. Aaron Stowe, the High Priest of Quill, blinked and turned his head. It was dark as pitch. A moment before, he'd been running through the chaos in Artemis, wrist shackled in front of him. He'd stumbled up the marble staircase of the mansion and flown down the lost hallway on the left, all the way to the end of it and taken a sharp right turn to the kitchenette, which is where he'd arrived from in the first place. He stepped into the glass tube that had brought him here and looked at all the buttons as the voices behind him grew louder. The tube in Luki's office closet only had one button, but this. As the panic rose to his throat, Anne raised his hands and pressed down, hitting all the buttons at once. Instantly, the light disappeared. Had he gone back to Haluki's house? Perhaps one of the closet double doors had swung shut. Aaron raised his arms in front of him, finding the opening in the tube so he could exit. He reached his shackled hands through it and felt nothing but air. No closet doors, nothing solid at all. He gingerly stepped one foot outside the tube. The surface below was uneven, not floor-like at all. In fact, it felt like dirt, but not well-packed dirt like the road in the quill. The earth beneath him had not been heavily trod upon for some quite time. Perhaps never. Well, it couldn't be never, Anne reasoned. Someone had to have put the tube here. He sniffed and hung onto the side of the tube's opening. He could smell dampness in the air, like quill an hour after rain downpour. Only this was somehow richer, earthier. The scent of mint was in the air as well, and he could hear something trickling, a brook or a stream not far away. It seemed like it could be pleasant here, but it was different and unexpected, and therefore quite frightening to someone from quill. What is this place? Aaron whispered straining to see something, anything. His fingers trembled, and he gripped the edge of the tube, opening even harder. He turned his head to look back inside the tube, but there were any buttons. They weren't visible in the darkness. 
Eventually, his eyes adjusted enough that he could barely make out a few shapes. Large trees loomed overhead, and the outline of an enormous rock appeared to step out of the shadows. Near the rock, he could see a faint patch of light from the moon shining through the trees. After another moment of calm, Aaron felt a bit of courage returning. It was enough for him to venture one step toward the light, and then another. A stick cracked under his foot, and he froze, but nothing came of it. He glanced over his shoulder, making sure he could still see the tube, and then continued toward the light. When he stood in the middle of the glow, he looked up through the clearing. Jungle vines hung around all of him from monstrous trees he'd ever seen. The rock nearby was much larger than he thought. It jutted upward in the darkness, and Aaron couldn't tell how high or deep it went. Aaron peered at the rock. Perhaps he could slime his shackles against it to break free. He edged closer, eyeing the shadowy crevices, one which looked like the entrance to a cave. Tentatively, he tapped the clay shackles on the rock. And immediately, two craggy yellow eyes opened and stared back at him. The cave opening changed shape, as if it were the giant rock's mouth, and it didn't speak. Aaron backed away in fright, and then from behind him, a high-pitched noise like a woman's scream pierced his ears. Aaron whirled around and screamed too. The screech grew louder, turning the boy's knees to liquid. He could make out a large animal shape creeping toward him. Aaron tried to run, but stumbled over his feet, unable to get his legs to move properly, and then pitched forward as his foot tangled with the vine on the jungle floor. He braced his fall with his forearms and rolled onto his back, desperate to see either the yellow-eyed rock or the screaming monster was following him. One of them was. The screaming creature crouched nearby, its hindquarters shifting as if it were about to pounce. Aaron rolled again onto his front side and scrambled up onto his feet, inching sideways toward the tube and holding onto his weapon, his shackled wrists in front of him. He scooted faster now in the direction of the tube, praying not to trip as the monster leaped and landed on the ground in a patch of light where Aaron had been. The creature gleamed black all over, shining brighter along the curve of its back. Its face resembled that of the frightening winged statue who guarded Aaron's twin brother, Alex, and the mansion in Artme, and its body was nearly as large. But this creature had no wings. It crept toward Aaron and screamed once more, displaying four gleaming, dripping fangs. Aaron froze, nearly fainting with fear, paralyzed by the hideous screaming as if he were under a spell. The creature pounced, knocking Aaron to the ground and holding him there with the giant paw on his chest. It was so startling, so uncommon, that instead of frightening Aaron, it infuriated him. He was the high priest of Quill, after all. He demanded respect. Aaron forgot his fear and sprang into action, slamming his shackles hard into the nose of the creature and crying out with all his might, "'Get off, beast! Release me!' To Aaron's astonishment, the creature stepped back. After the slightest hesitation, Aaron rolled out of the reach and crawled to the tube, his hands flailing wildly for the buttons, any buttons he could find, anything to get him out of here. As his right hand connected as the dark jungle disappeared, Aaron realized his shackles had fallen away. His hands were free. Two, a looming attack. At the sight of a hundred lights prickling the horizon in the direction of Warbler Island, Alex Stowe, head mage of Artemis, bounded up the mansion with robes flying and leaping the stairs three in a stride. He didn't have time to look for his awful brother Aaron. He didn't have time to comfort his newest friend, Skye, and her younger brother, Crow, who felt sure that the people of Warbler were coming to attack Artemis because of them and their escape. Alex only had time to act. Behind him came Simber, and behind Simber came Miss Octavia, the Octigator, nearly appearing to float through the air on her mini tentacles. Alex dashed through the no longer a secret hallway, past the two mysterious doors he had not been able to unlock, and then past the doors to his new living quarters and the Museum of Large. He turned left into his new office at the end of the hall, by the picture window that overlooked Artemis, 
Charlie the Gargoyle was already there. He spent a good deal of time in his wing in the mansion, still not quite having gotten over the loss of his creator, Mr. Today, whose recent death had shaken Artemis. Can you ask Matilda to contact us if she sees Aaron showing up at the palace tonight? Alex asked Charlie. Also find out if his wrists are still shackled. Charlie responded with the hand signal Alex had determined to mean yes. Though Sky, who knew the sign language, had said something once about how the hand signal had more complex meaning like yes, with an air of reference, as if the gargoyle was acknowledging Alex as a king. It made Alex feel a little embarrassed to be referred to in such a manner, but Sky had said it would be insulting to Charlie if Alex asked him to stop, so the new mage reluctantly accepted it. Thanks, Alex said. He drummed his fingers nervously on the desk and sorted through a stack of papers, not really seeing them, just keeping his fingers busy as if to mimic the speed of the wheels turning in his head. Simba and Miss Octavia entered the office and took their places. Claire Morning and Gunnar Haluki, both recovered from their brushes with death, were not far behind. Telling them was Florence, who had stayed back to ensure everyone made it safely inside the mansion to await their instructions. Alex stood abruptly and paced the floor, distracted by a whirling wind with thoughts, and not quite knowing how or where to start preparing for an attack at home. Crow had cried out that it was the birds of Warbler coming to get them, but Alex thought it was more likely that the dots of light were from Queen Agala's fleet of ships that she'd been building for years. Sky had said there were many various states of construction. He wondered if Warbler really could be heading to Artemis to attack. But of course they must be, muttered Alex. Don't be ridiculous. He looked up when the floor shook slightly. Florence had taken her seat. The strange party of humans, statues, and creatures glanced down easily about, quite possibly because of Alex's strange mumblings. Not a single one in the room had been around to see Alex's forced evolution from a boy to head mage back when Artemis had turned to dust. The creatures were rendered lifeless and the humans nearly so lacked from food and water. And while Alex, after a number of stumbles and amid countless moments of despair, had proven to be quite worthy of taking place of their beloved leader, Mr. Today, the team had not been there to witness the worst of the situation. Alex looked around the room, thankful for perhaps the 87th millionth time that the eyes that sought his belonged to this particular group of advisors. He opened his lips to greet them, but hesitated, both in speaking and in pacing. Instead, he took a moment to rally and consider who's at his provocal juncture. Simber, the pristine stone-winged cheetah, who had almost gone without effort to be Alex's confident and first mate. Florence, the enormous ebony statue who commanded Artemis' magical warriors. Miss Octavia, the art instructor, one of Mr. Today's most gifted, trusted, and outspoken creations. Gunnar Haluki, the former high priest of Quill and father of Alex's dear and valuable friends, Lonnie and Henry. And Claire Morning, Mr. Today's daughter, a musical genius and nurturer rather than leader, by her own proclamation. It was an incredible group, Mr. Today's own hand-picked team, and they were among the best of Artemis. Yet for Alex, something wasn't quite right, because during their absence when Artemis had disappeared, Alex had quite desperately come to trust a few others. Alex tapped his lips. How much time do we have before they get here, Sim? Several hours. Likely more, replied the beast. Alex nodded. I'll be right back, he said. He strode to the rear wall of the office, uttered a spell, and went through the secret magic door that led into his private quarters. Clive, he called. Alex's blackboard took on a slight glow in the dark room, a face pressed out of it. Yes, my lord? Knock it off, Alex muttered. I need you to summon Sam Heed Burkish, Karina Holiday, and Scene Ranger. Have them come to my office at once. Certainly, your grace. You're going to be sorry about mocking me very soon, Alex warned. He didn't have patience for Clive's sarcastic jokes today. His eyes landed on the cabinet that held his spell components. 
Alex took a few seconds to take off his robe pockets as well as the pockets of his component vest underneath, and then returned to the office. Clive called out an old but welcome reminder not to die as Alex closed the door. Simber stood gazing out toward the sea from the office windows. Alex muttered a spell to unlatch one of them. He opened it so Simber could sample the air to get a better sense of what was approaching. The others talked quietly, already planning. A moment later, Alex's three breathless friends arrived and stood uncertainly in the doorway. Come in. Are Sky and Crow all right? Alex asked. Lonnie and Meg are calming them down. Unconsciously, Sam, he touched the scars on his neck. They're upset about what the leaders tell you at Warbler, he said. He sat down and jiggled his foot. That Queen Agala would come after anyone who escaped, identify them by their orange eyes, and kill them. Lonnie and I nearly busted up laughing the first time we heard them back in Warbler, but Crow and Sky are really afraid and upset because of what they brought on us by escaping and landing here. Sky is a mess over it. I was afraid of that, Alex sighed, but then he perked up and it pointed at the empty chairs in the room. Sit down, guys, he urged. Sammy looked like he was full of questions, but apparently he knew enough to not ask them now. Alex glanced at Simber, as if he wanted the giant stone cheetah's approval of the decision to invite these friends to the meeting. Simber dipped his head slightly, barely a nod, but the meeting was cleared to Alex that Simber thought well of the plan. Alex expelled a breath, trying to push the nervousness out of it, and leaned back against the desk, half sitting on the corner of it. "'Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming so quickly,' he said. He looked at the three new, earnest faces in the room, and found immediately assured he'd made the right choice. "'Now then,' he continued, clasping his hands on his lap. "'Let's figure this all out, shall we?' It was the voice of a leader, a leader who, perhaps the first time, felt and sounded quite sure of himself." Three, a word from Clive. Sam Heed, in a minor fit of anxiety over being included as an advisor, took painstaking notes of the meeting in an effort to prove his usefulness to the mediating group. By the end of twenty minutes, his record of the conversation looked something like this: Florence to organize and prepare squads as usual. Also, will assign squad placement along shore and give all info to Alex for distribution via Blackboard. As fleet approaches, Haluki to sail out via Claire's boat to lead her vessel and try for peaceful resolution. Karina reminds us most Warblarians can't swim. How will they approach without ruining their ships aground? Advantage for Artme? Alex suggests stationing all orange-eyed residents, me, Lonnie, Sky, Crow, in water for safety since Warblarians can't swim. Dumb idea, Stowe. They can still throw or shoot weapons at us. I suggest Library 3rd Floor instead, and adding Megan too because of the Thornament scars, as Lonnie and I believe Queen Agala will seek revenge for her escape. Alex to expand Hospital Wing, Miss Morning to take charge as Chief Healer, with Henry Haluki and other nurses as her assistants. Simber to monitor approach. We think Agala has some kind of magic, etc., the silence spell over non-human voices on Warbler, but no one's sure what the extent of it. Lonnie and I did not witness inhabitants using any magic. Karina to find out if Sky and Crow have info. After a lengthy discussion, we decide to help defend Quill if Warbler breaches the wall, but we always take care of Artemeans first. Our goal? Defend Artemian and drive Warblarians away with as few casualties as possible. Artemian should feel perfectly comfortable using any spell and all means of magic to protect themselves. 
Any Warblarians who truly wish to escape Tyrant Queen Agala will find shelter within Artemis. In addition, there were so many scratched-out notes as the magnitude of ideas was broken down, and some discarded as being faulty. When they had run out of ideas, the team dispersed to prepare for battle in various ways. Alex descended the marble staircase and found Sky and Crone in the dining room with Megan, looking glum. He checked the time and then walked over to them. They looked up when he approached. Sky's hair was still as sleek and fashioned as it had been at the masquerade ball a few hours earlier, but she no longer wore her dress. Instead, she was dressed like any other Artaman ready for battle, with a component vest and everything. Alex felt breathless around her whenever she looked at him, even now, but he forced himself to stay focused. He pulled a chair around, sat on it backward, and lowered his head until his chin rested on the chair back, and he was face to face with Crow. You okay, little guy? Crow nodded, but his eyes told a different story. I need you to hear me, both of you, he said, glancing briefly at Sky as well. It appears we are going to be attacked, and it'll happen in a few hours. You guys can sit here and feel terrible about it, even though it's not your fault. Or you can help us prepare. We'll help, of course, murmured Skye in her husky voice, damaged by the thorns she once wore around her neck. Crow dropped his gaze, but he nodded in agreement. Good, Alex said, because we need you. The brief pep talk seemed to rally them, giving them new resolves. Alex headed to the next area near the landing, so he could expand the hospital wing while he waited for Florence to report back with warrior instructions. He held up his hands to the small four-room bed and could not concentrate thinking about the size room he wanted, and when he felt quite confident, he whispered, Extend and heal, size large. The small room's walls grew, pushing back to create a larger space. They glided smoothly as the floor and ceiling hesitated along with them. Fixtures and workstations pressing out from the bare walls. When the room ceased to move, the beds and tables popped out and dropped neatly into place. Alex counted the beds. There were forty in all. More than enough, wouldn't you say? Yes, as Florence appeared. Dear me, I certainly hope so. Florence handed over a stack of papers to Alex. Here are the battle plans. Simber says this is the speed they're moving. They won't be here before daybreak. Thanks, Alex said, looking them over. I'll have Clive send out the orders right away. Alex returned to his living quarters and summoned Clive, who pushed his face through the blackboard. Now what? Clive asked. I have a job for you. It's urgent. Great, Clive rolled his eyes. If you're not up to it, I can ask Stuart, Alex said. Stuart was Sam Heed's blackboard. For reasons unknown to Alex, Clive didn't seem all that fond of Stuart. Clive frowned. What's the job? We are about to be attacked, Alex said. You're the first to know. Clive's eyes widened. Me? You're the head blackboard now. I need you to distribute the orders. I also need to be able to count on you. Can you do this, or do I? Clive's mouth fell open. He nearly drooled before he snapped his mouth shut once more. Yes, he said reverently. Yes, Alex, I most certainly can. There was no trace of sarcasm in his voice now. Alex might have smiled had the situation not been so dire. Good. Don't mess it up. This is of the utmost importance. Clive nodded. You can count on me. I know I can, Alex said. Here goes. Alex took the papers in his hands and dictated various assignments to Clive so that Clive could send out instructions to each team in Artemis, letting them know where and when to report. When Alex finished, Clive said in earnest, Shall I open with the general announcement? Something that will really get their attention? Alex hid a smile. Oh, by all means. Put your heart and soul into it, Clive. A moment later, he felt the floor shake, a sure sign that Summer and Florence were coming to do one last careful run through the plans. And now I've got to go. Clive nodded. Thank you, he said quietly, and then he disappeared into the blackboard. 
Shortly thereafter, on blackboards everywhere in Artemis, the following words appeared in stunning neon letters. From Clive, head blackboard and confident to our noble mage, Alex Stowe. Artemis is under attack. Please read and follow your instructions. And above all, don't die. Four, a mass of tubes. As it turned out, there was only one button in the jungle tube for the high priest answer to push. When he opened his eyes, he was back in the kitchenette in Artemis' mansion, his hands free and his heart pounding. He peered out wondering if he could be smarter to risk his life trying to exit Artemis on foot rather than to attempt pushing another button. But the hallway outside the kitchenette was filled with voices, most notably his brother's and the growling voice of the ridiculously huge flying monster. Aaron thought that exiting the mansion now would mean certain death. He looked at the panel before him, agonizing over which button to push. Finally, he decided to start at the beginning of the row. He sucked in a deep breath, his steady his nerves, and blew it out as he pressed the first one. Instantly, he was thrust into darkness again, and he feared the worst, that he was back in the horrible jungle with the screaming black creature and the enormous rock with yellow eyes. He nearly slammed his fist on the panel in search of another button, but as he lifted his hand to do so, he noticed that the smell was quite different from the musky scent he remembered. This place smelled like... like stale, rotting wood. The heat of the location seeped into the tube and warmed him immediately, and after a moment he put his head out through the tube's opening. Aaron's fingers found a solid panel. He pushed on it and with a creak it swung open. A bit of moonlight trickled in through a window, and soon Aaron realized where he was. He was back in Haluki's empty house. Oh, thank Quill, he breathed, and he stumbled out of the closet on his weak legs and sank to his knees trembling in the very spot where Mr. Dodea had taken his last breath. Aaron sat there for a very long time, feeling faint every time he tried to stand. Finally, he crawled out of Luki's office, down the hallway and into a bedroom, where he climbed onto the bed and lay there, trying very hard not to think about what he'd seen and how he'd nearly perished. When he drifted off to sleep, he experienced rare dreams that were filled with strange, frightening creatures chasing him through a jungle. At every turn, he stumbled and the creature devoured him. No matter how he tried to shout, release me to them, he could never get the words out to come in time. Aaron awoke with a start just before daybreak, unsure at first where he was, and then remembering. He felt a wave of shame wash through him. Dreaming was not allowed in Quill, and he'd had quite a night of it. He scowled defiantly as he stared at the ceiling. What did it matter now? He was the high priest. He had no obligation to tell a soul. After a while, he rose and scrounged through the Haluki pantry to see if he could find anything to eat. He made himself a meager breakfast, and it was while he was eating that he finally remembered what had happened before he got caught up in the crazy tubes. The explosion in the sky, the lights piercing the darkness over the sea, and the chaos that followed in Artemis. Their island was being attacked. The palace, with its opening in the wall, was vulnerable. Quill, with its entrance to Artemis, was vulnerable. And here he sat. Aaron froze mid-chew, and then he shoved his chair back, hurried to the door, and ran out of the house. He turned up the road and headed toward the palace. Hurry up, he said, jiggling the portacles impatiently as he waited for the guards to open it and sprinting the west of the way up the drive. He ran to the opening he made in a 40-foot-tall wall that surrounded Quill and peered through it, careful to hide his body in case the attackers were already closing in. His eyes darted all around the downward slope on the other side of the wall, and then, seeing nothing on land, he swept his gaze over the sea. A dozen ships sailed not far offshore, heading around the curve of the island toward Artemis. Aaron gasped at the sight. He'd never seen anything like it, his body was frozen to the spot as he watched the vessels inch toward his brother's section of the island. They were headed to Artemis. For a rare moment, Aaron felt a came in compassion, and for the briefest time he thought, 
Perhaps I should help them. But the moment passed quickly, and Yarn realized that this forced Herbert of business was to protect Quill. He would close up the space in the wall and build a barricade in front of the entrance to Artemis. Feverishly, Aaron reached for the first block, too scared to wait for a team of necessaries to assemble and do the work, and placed it in the opening of the wall. He hoisted a second block and a third, pushing them tightly together, scraping his knuckles and drawing blood, muttering to himself as he filled the space. As he worked, Aaron realized something very important about the former ruler of Quill. The High Priest Justine had been right all along about the dangers beyond the wall. She had protected Quill for fifty years without a single incident by the unwanted botched things up. And she'd done that by closing off Quill to the outside world. Now, by opening up the wall and allowing his people to mingle with the unwanteds, Aaron had broken the very best rule Justine had made, leaving the people of Quill vulnerable. How terribly, awfully, utterly foolish Aaron had been to doubt at his hero. Five. Weapons of Mass Confusion At daybreak, the entire community of Artme assembled throughout the main floor of the mansion and rose on the stairs and on the balcony. Good morning, Aaron said crisply from the front wonder, near the door that faced the sea. It's a bit crowded in here, but as Clive explained in your instructions, we have decided not to go outside until we know just how the people of Warbler plan to attack us. I'd like you all to know that about an hour ago, we attempted a peacekeeping mission sent by Gunnar Haluki out to speak with the Warblarians, but they would have nothing to do with him unless he gave us one or two Warbler natives, as well as Sam, he, Megan, and Lonnie. Of course, that was out of the question, and try as he might, he was unable to get any sense of their method of attack. A murmur rose and Alex paused, glancing at Sky. He went on. Haluki returned to us, and we now have Simber stationed on the lawn. Please stay quiet and wait for me to give your team leaders a signal to exit the mansion and take your stations. Alex turned his attention to the window, watching as a fleet of twelve ships approached. At least there aren't a hundred, he remarked in a low voice to Florence. There must have been several light ships on the ship. The warbler ships dwarf Artemite's own pirate vessel, which Captain Ahab, the mildly insane statue, had moved to the lagoon for safekeeping. It seems like this could be an easy battle, Florence said, but that's exactly what worries me. Queen Agala is not a fool. And so we wait, Alex said. The ship sat in front of Artme for at least 30 minutes without a single thing happening. The people inside the mansion whispered and shifted and tried not to bump each other. Sky and Crow grew more nervous as time passed. Soon Sky sidled up to Alex. They're up to something, she murmured. I'm sure of it. We're ready, he said, not taking his eyes off the ship's. We're taking it seriously, I promise. He pressed his lips together and then added, Please do whatever it takes to keep you and Crow safe. If they come after you, take the tube to the library and the steps up to the third floor. That's the safest place. Sky frowned. We want to help. Sky, Alex said in earnest, it would really help me to know that you are safe. The last thing we need is to have you to rescue from Warbler again. We have other places to go and people to rescue, like your mother. I know, Sky closed her eyes for a moment and sighed. You're right, of course, but we're still helping. We need to. She didn't elaborate, but Alex knew she needed to help to prove that she was loyal to Artemis, even though no one doubted it. That's fine, Alex said. We want you to help, but I also need to trust you. You can fight, but do the right thing and hide if necessary. If necessary, Sky agreed. Got that, Crow? Crow nodded. At that moment, a large growl from outside the mansion turned into a full-on roar, making the mansion's windows vibrate. Alex's gaze darted from one ship to the next, as large wooden planks quickly rose up from every deck. 
A loud dozen thwaps peppered the air, and the giant arms swung toward Artemis, releasing objects into the sky. Catapults! Florence yelled. Get back! Away from the windows! Alex stepped back as a multitude of things flew toward the mansion. What the? He muttered. What are they? In the air, the things sprouted parachutes, slowing them down, and as they neared the island, they began to float toward the ground. They're people! Alex shouted. Warbler's first line is landing on shore, and they aren't very big or scary looking, he thought, a bit puzzled. He turned to face the unwanted. Leaders, take your places outside and attack!